I didn't think I was oppressive. I didn't even think in terms of oppression. Um, I didn't I didn't and couldn't make the connection between the fact that there I was growing up in this lovely all-white suburb which was always squeaky clean because there were people who spent their whole life sweeping streets after us. I mean, we had garbage collections every day. If there was a piece of paper on a beach, a man came along and picked it up. That is what we expected. I didn't make the connections between that and the way the world was put together for the rest of people in South Africa. I didn't make the connection between the fact that something had happened historically and politically that enabled me to live that way. And when I did start thinking about apartheid, I always thought about it in terms of it being something that was being done that had nothing to do with me. That was out there and to do with them. And they were always the Afrikaners. Somehow one exonerated oneself from blame. I'm 41 years old and today I'm living in exactly the same house in which I lived and which I was born. However, this area has undergone considerable changes. Um, before sort of the 70s, it was a completely mixed area, mixed in terms of black people, that is, coloured and African people living together, you know, fairly harmoniously. And gradually the black people or African people, as we say, were all forced to move to areas like Langau. Um, on the other hand, living in, in this area, has, which is classified as coloured now... Um, I suppose it has been, it's, been very it's like any other move. It's you, 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 you're quite anxious because you're going to a place that you don't know and there's all the anxiety and the fears, and, you know, we had no idea where we were, we were going to. And just thinking about all the other people that we don't know come from all the different places, what would it be like? And and we had formed quite um, good uh, relationships and ties with the people that we were living with, and it was quite difficult. Mm. But also... There was a lot of talk that um, people were being moved to areas that only had black people, and 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 people were quite uh, upset about that, because we 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 felt that um, people were not moving because they wanted to move, but they were made to move, and the whole thing about people needing to choose. I grew up in a place called Sea Point, which yeah. is an exclusive white suburb in Cape Town. It's one of probably three or four suburbs along the Atlantic seaboard. Um, the house was a big square house, which was literally two minutes away from the beaches. Out of my bedroom window, I could see the sea. And wherever you were in the house, you could hear the waves, you knew exactly what was going on, you knew what the tides were. You could almost tell the weather off the sound of the sea. Um, it's a point that orients you almost forever once you have it in your head.
Gertrude Fester, Misana Matiwana and I have certain things in common. We're all women for a start. We're all in and around the same age. We all come from South Africa. In fact, we're all from Cape Town. But there, the similarities end. Because Gertrude is colored, Misana is African, and I am white. This is the story of how I tried to go home last year, to one of the most beautiful, one of the most rotten places in the world. retreat um, the one thing that was um, maybe not the best experience was the raids the pass raids like every weekend every week the pass raids and that was something that you actually were aware of very early in your life like the early morning knockings the early morning kicking of doors and the tosh on your face and the asking for passes. I mean, like, that was something that one really kind of, like, uh, knew quite early. And then also as children, I mean, like, you, you, you get used to those things and somehow you, you try and, and, and get fun out of them as well. And I remember we used to stand on the road and we would see the van coming and we would, the sign was to say in Kosa that, meaning that it is red. I don't know, probably it was symbolizing danger. And we'd say that, and we know that some people would know, the people who don't have passes would know, and then they would hide away. But at times we'd also say that when we knew there was no van, just to, to scare some of the adults, if we're feeling that, we just wanted to have fun of the whole thing. But yes, um, I was aware of those things quite early. It's hard to describe the extent to which apartheid really is the fabric of life there, or has been so far. It it really just is overwhelming, it's all-embracing. So it's not something that as a child you would be taught. You wouldn't you wouldn't be taught not to associate with blacks. You wouldn't be taught not to get on black buses. You wouldn't be taught um, to be afraid of blacks. But these would all be things that you would know. You would know that you didn't associate with black children. You would know that there were buses that you did not get on. You would also know that while you might adore your nanny and your nanny's best friends who came to your backyard that there were all these black people out there who were basically going to get you if you didn't watch it. I suppose my my first consciousness of it would have been that the only time we saw black people 
was when they were actually facilitating us. The only black people in Seapoint when I was growing up were there in a menial capacity. And the only reason they were there was because they were in a menial capacity. They were maids. They were garden boys. They were house boys. These are people who would have been in their 20s, their 30s and their 40s. Um, the only time I saw black people as a child, apart from that, would have been at the weekends because there was one beach in Seapoint which was set aside for blacks and it was the beach which was opposite our house. And we would stand in the front garden and there would be streams of people going past all day. And I remember an incredible cacophony. You would hear maybe five or six different languages in the space of as many minutes. And we would stand in the garden and we would know that we weren't to talk to these people because somehow they were they were dangerous to us. And I don't know where where I learned that because I don't ever re remember being told don't talk to black people it was just something that you'd, you'd, you knew about so that would have been really the point at which I became aware that here there, was, there were all these people who really had no business in my life at all except in so far as they facilitated me they looked after me they served me um, you aspire to whiteness, you, you admire white people. Um, we even have, you know, sayings that if, if someone pretends they're better than what you are, you play white or you want to be white. Um, also sometimes being mistaken for white would sometimes be a compliment, you know, so it's very, it's, it's, it's this whole thing of, um, of aspiring t to the values and what your oppressors stand for and are. I mean, very much like the whole colonial thing. Not to be proud of your own culture or who or what you are or proud and accept the way you speak. You know, I mean, it, the dolls were white. The, your books were white. Everything was white. The, f the fairer you are, the better you are. Um, the more you look like a white person, the more beautiful you are. I mean, you've also internalised those type of feelings that, that white is beautiful. And, and it's bizarre, but the whole thing about hair, you know. I, I remember uh, my nephews telling me their mother told them that if they meet a girlfriend, the first thing they should do is take her swimming to see what happens to her hair. One of, the, one of the first times that I became really aware of the extent to which white people, including my own parents, really despised blacks and really didn't see them as being anything other than hands was when a woman who worked in our house performed a backstreet abortion on herself um, and nearly bled to death in the room in the backyard, which was the maid's room. I went into the room and there was, there was blood everywhere and this woman was lying like, like a wounded animal. 
And I remember my mother's response being anger. There was no compassion there. And that was another person who vanished from our backyard very quickly. And my childhood was really a stream of women who came silently in and out of the backyard and lasted for a while in the house. And this would have been the main point of contact um, with, with the majority of South Africans. Uh, I don't remember being frightened of white people, uh, but I remember just being angry at white people because I suppose my first encounter with them, quite funny, was the police. So I had that kind of um, attitude formed from that kind of encounter. But at the same time, at the same time, my school was quite patronized by white people, the primary school. So there was a kind of mixture of feeling because I also knew good white people. I could quite early kind of like uh, change my, my kind of like feelings and attitudes as, 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 as I saw people and I saw them in terms of what they represented. So although I'm saying at the same time that look, my first encounter was through police, but at the same time, that then was the attitude that I had with the police, but I wouldn't have that with other people. I distinctly remember my early childhood days of shopping with my mother in Weinbeck and the fights. And none of us liked going with my mother to the shops because there'll always be a fight. Because I remember one day we were in the shop in Weinbeck <clears throat> and my mother was standing there to pay. And the, sh the shopkeeper, owner, uh, first served all the other people who were white in the shop. And my mother was a person who never never kept quiet for any of those things. And she would kick up a row and kick up a fuss. And I remember many days when we, were, we came back from shopping, we were crying as children because my mother would always be fighting with the, with the shop owners. So there was also that kind of experience. And then we asked why. I said, well, he has no right to serve other people before me when I've been standing in the shop all the time. I'm going to be buying... Like, and I'm going to be using money, which is the same money as other people are, are going to be using. So he has no right. And and I think my kind of also understanding of this of of of, of the South African kind of system was was through her quite a lot because she was a real fighter. They bought me a room downstairs. We call it maid's quarters. I live there during the whole week. Then Fridays I go home to my own house in the location. If you speak to any South African of my age, we all remember Sharpville. We also all remember the protest march through Cape Town, um, which followed 
the Shah full massacre. And I mean, my memory of it is very, very clear. My mother at the time had a woman working for her called Jessie Santo. And I remember getting up one morning and the house just reverberating with tension. Um, we weren't allowed to go to school that day. My mother was quite fraught. And Jessie came to her and said that she was going on the protest march. And my mother said, well, Jessie, that's fine, but I want you to give me the keys to the house before you go. And Jessie just turned around and said, if I give you the keys of your house, I'm not coming back. And I can't remember how I felt about it at the time. I was very sad that she wasn't coming back. Um, but I can't remember being outraged at my mother for asking her for the keys or outraged that, you know, really my parents had no views other than fear at that time about what was going to happen. Jessie never came back. She packed her bags and she went on the protest march and she never came back. And I remember my father coming home that night from work. He worked in an area of Cape Town called Woodstock, which would have been one of the main drags in from the township to the city centre. And he, I always remember him coming in and saying, the only thing I've heard all afternoon were footsteps, and I was terribly frightened. Some of them do know, and some of them don't. So uh, I think really it's our duty to tell them what you don't like and what you, you do like. If they didn't know before, I don't think they know now. So that's why I say, if you see that the white people doesn't treat you like the others, you know, it treats you in a different way, the way that you don't like, it's better for you to tell them that, uh, I'm sorry, lady, uh, can we please change uh, the situation and do this and this if maybe she doesn't want it then you've got to just excuse yourself and go home uh, I think we knew the suburbs quite well because most of our parents were domestic workers so like Given school holidays, you'll go and, ha and help your mother at work. So you would be introduced to the kind of like white suburb and know it. And I know that a cousin of mine also, her mother worked in Kenilworth for a long time. During school holidays, we'd go to Kenilworth. Her mother stayed at work. We'd go to Kenilworth and let her help her mother come back home. And we'll go to my mother's work. So we knew the white suburbs and we knew what they looked like. I mean, peaceful, beautiful houses. So we... We were quite aware of that. Well, there were just two beaches that I remember. Um, it was Cork Bay, and then you had to pass, that was on the train we went, and you had to pass this really, Neusenberg and St. James, I mean, they're such beautiful beaches. 
um, Musenberg um, with this little change in kiosk and all painted different colors. It was like fairyland. And I used to, out of the train, just watch like longingly. But I didn't ever feel any anger or any bitterness then, you know, because it was such a, it was, it was, you know, like a fairy tale is to you. I mean, you could never be a princess, all those things. But as a child, I had that sort of awe and excitement. And then I think the humiliation actually came then with, with the buses. I mean, I would never venture to go into a white beach, you see. So I didn't have that experience of anger. I just, like, stared longingly. But the buses were, were problematic when you were told that you've got to sit. I mean, some of the buses were blacks at the back or X from X whites only. I don't know if you remember that. So then places were full or some, and sometimes you just... You know, you had your foot across the line or something and being humiliated in that type of way. So that's where I had anger and resentment. But the beaches were, were just like some fairyland place. By the time I got to secondary school, I think I think really the, the malaise that affects all white people in South Africa was really affecting me quite badly. I had a teacher called Mrs. Schwartz, and I remember going to school one day, and she wasn't there, and there was this sort of hushed whispering going on all around the school. It transpired that Mrs. Schwartz's husband had been caught in bed with a black woman and had been arrested under the Immorality Act because you mustn't forget at that time whites and blacks were not allowed to have sexual intercourse together. And this was a major scandal. And what I remember very clearly is the shame attached to Mrs. Schwartz, not to her husband. It was seen as a shame that this woman couldn't keep her husband, that somehow she was so unattractive, inattentive, undesirable, that this man went off and did it with a black woman. But that was really the beginning for me of some order of change that I couldn't, I couldn't see my way clear of it. I couldn't see my way clear of this overwhelming weight that hung on everybody's shoulders. And it wasn't just on, on my shoulders as a white girl. It was, it was everywhere. People were literally bowed under the weight of, of this oppression it's it's a terribly oppressive thing to have to live with it erodes your soul just going into any area or any restaurant or any movie house 
you still sometimes think, oh God, you know, they're looking at me, you know, should I be here? You know, it, it's, it's actually is bizarre, you know, but it's there. It's not there all the time. It comes and goes. And like, for example, um, two years ago, December, I just stayed at home and I had some friends here and I discovered Cape Town. I went to all the places that I've never ever gone to, that I longed to go to go to as a child. So it was, I mean, and this is what what lots of South Africans or Black South Africans are doing now. We're trying to discover the country in which we were born. Um, I mean, just feeling comfortable to walk where you want to walk. I, you know, I mean, there were all these things sort of said like Sea Point or certain areas, sort of white by night type of thing, and. It, it's actually true. I mean, the way sometimes you were looked at or you just didn't feel comfortable. I mean, I never have had a pass, you know. I never needed to have a pass. But there was still a psychological pass. You just didn't feel comfortable or if people <laughs> look at you. As I say, one of the things, I think, is that, that you're just apologetic for your existence. Um... Uh, as a child, I grew up free. I grew up in a home where, I mean, our neighbors were colored. We're coming in and out of our home and we're going in and out of their homes. So I never felt inferior then. And then finishing schooling, uh, I was like, suppose any other youngster, teenager had dreams and 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 ambitions about where, what I wanted, where I wanted to be. And and as you you grow older and you start moving, because when you are younger, you're kind of like more moving within your own world. You don't go out of it a lot. But um, as you start moving out of it a bit, then you all the confidence that you have, people kind of like uh, make you start wondering start losing confidence in yourself by the way they respond to you you know the way that they treat you and and then that happens a lot and and, and that bruises your kind of self esteem all the time and by the time you really like an adult you you really kind of like um it is difficult to to, to remain Confident all the time. Mm. I suppose, yeah, there are things that are going to be difficult. Mm. I think for me, it's just realizing how much what one has missed out on. Uh, the other day, I, I was uh, speaking to a friend of mine who we grew up together, schooled uh, together. And we're just thinking about all the other kids that we went to school with. Um, brilliant uh, 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 kids that we, we schooled with. And I'm wondering whatever happened to them because most of them had to leave in those early years because their parents didn't qualify to be in the area. And so they had to go back to the chance guy, go back where, to wherever their parents came from. And we were just wondering and thinking, you know, how those people's lives were kind of like disrupted uh, by all those moves and 
probably going back to to a place where maybe there wouldn't be the facilities and people wouldn't their schooling would simply stop and they would end up being probably what going to the mines to find work or whatever and all the potential that people had uh, just just destroyed hmm. I think for me though those are the things that I still just feel angry about that um, people with so much who could have kind of participated uh, meaningfully uh, if there were there was a society that provided for that people who could have uh, made some kind of contribution that even that they were just not given those opportunities. And for me, that was what has been worse about apartheid, really. Um, the way it just retarded people, made people not to be able to use any of their uh, abilities, not to be able to to just simply enjoy life meaningfully. Mm. It just lived uh, and just like passing through, you know. And I always think that life is is such an important experience for all of us. It's it's a wonderful gift, and and you have just passed through without exploring any kind of abilities that one has is is really uh, a sad thing. That's even worse if then. Uh, they are kind of like people who've got power will actually make sure that you never have that opportunity. I think that's the worst thing that happened to a lot of a lot of us. On occasions like Republic Day, which is, I think it's the 31st of May, we would be taken in busloads to the Grand Parade in central Cape Town, and we would be made to sit in rows on these benches in the middle of a cobbled parade, um, at one end of which was Jan van Riebeck's fort, the symbol of civilization in southern Africa. And there would be a dais at the end of this, a sort of makeshift platform. And onto this would come Favurt, and it was the most bizarre situation. I mean, we were not talking about the Orange Free State, we were not talking about the Transvaal, we weren't talking about the children who were the descendants of the great trekkers and of the Boers who fought against the British and won against all odds, of the Boers who murdered the Zulus 
families which have strong traditions of, of Afrikanerdom. And this man would get up and start talking in Afrikaans at us. So there were all these things going on. There were all these very overt symbols of of this regime that somehow, somewhere one, one was starting to feel wasn't right. But that said, it's one thing knowing somewhere inside of you that things are not right. It's one thing knowing that the things that aren't right are actually corrosive and are eroding you as a person, that you can literally feel yourself shriveling at the age of 13, 14, 15, which is a terrible experience to go through. And I'm sure that however I experienced it, it must have been a hundred times worse if you were at the receiving end of all the oppressive apartheid legislation. It's quite another thing finding ways of talking about it because from the time that the Communist Party was banned, from the time the ANC was banned, censorship in South Africa really became incredibly rigorous. And there was no space, no almost no philosophical space for discussing it. We didn't have access to to the kind of range of political thought that was available in Western Europe at that time to position how we felt on a spectrum. So you knew somewhere inside you that these things weren't right, but you didn't actually know how to go about talking about it. So as an effect, a lot of the time, as far as I can remember, when we spoke about apartheid, we spoke about it very ironically. It was done almost in terms of joking because we didn't have any other way of doing it. There was nothing there. So it was like swimming underwater the whole time with earplugs in and not being able to understand why you couldn't hear anything clearly. That's the only way I can describe it. And then my cousin's husband was banned for five years. I remember we sort of say, saying, shame, he's banned. And shame, he can only speak to one person at a time. And then going to the house and then being in the room with everyone else and he's in the other room and one, one, one would go one at a time. And, you know, it didn't make sense. But you also... Don't ask too many questions. Yes, it's wrong and, and it's shame and it's, it's pitiful and you feel sorry for him. But you don't talk about it. I'm thinking of my own imprisonment too for treason and terrorism. That um, my immediate, my, my mother's family, in fact my mother's and father's family, not one of them came to see me in prison at all. And you know what? I remember going to, after the charges were withdrawn, 
I remember going to a function, taking my mother to some 60th birthday party, and no one saying a word. I went back to teach, and with the exception of one person, no one said anything at all. I sometimes think I, I often think I've come to terms with it, but obviously it's not so. I mean, sometimes I laugh about it, and other times I'm still surprised that I cry. It was actually very bad, especially solitary confinement. It was. And that's why I say, even though things seem fine, I mean, the scars of apartheid are all there. Absolutely. You know, at times you can speak about it without getting any hurt. And at times, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know really. I don't know what, what, what triggers it. At times you think you are perfectly cured. At times you still know that uh, maybe one can never be completely cured. Once you're in that kind of setup, you can't move. The world starts involuting on itself. It closes down on you. And I really felt that I was going to drown there if I didn't get out. So I left. I thought I was leaving for good. So I packed my suitcase. It was a very big suitcase and I filled half of it with books. And I left and really I, I had no notion of ever going back again and as it happened I didn't go back very often after that. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.